0: Again, that's over at sellingthecouch.com forward slash Thryzer, and be sure to enter the promo code STC. So we'll jump right into today's podcast session. Hello, hello. Welcome to session 88 of Selling the Couch. Hope you're having a wonderful day and a wonderful week. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to today's podcast episode. So in today's session, we are covering email and the intersection of email and HIPAA compliance. More specifically, what are some of the things that we should consider if we are going to correspond with potential clients and our clients over email? My guest is Roy Huggins from personcentertech.com. Roy and I have connected in the selling the couch community. Roy is one of the biggest experts in our field when it comes to this intersection of technology and safety, and security, and HIPAA compliance. Before we get to today's session, I tell you a little bit more. I just wanted to thank the folks at Brighter Vision for supporting this month's podcast. Brighter Vision is a company that works with private practitioners to create absolutely stunning websites. You can find more information about the good work that they do at sellingthecouch.com forward slash Brighter Vision, all one word. And uh, that gives you 30 days off your first, um, it gives you 30 days um, absolutely free. So in today's session, we're going to cover a number of things. The first is, what in the world is HIPAA compliant email, and why is it so important? Then we're going to dive really deep into the practical side of this. What are some of the things that you should be looking for when it comes to HIPAA compliant security for email, and um, if you're going to be corresponding with clients over email? So let's get right to it. Here is my conversation with Roy Huggins from PersonCenterTech.com. Hi, Roy. Welcome to Selling the Couch.
1: Hey, Melvin. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, it's finally nice to connect. We've connected over Facebook, and now we're Mm -hmm. actually talking live in person.
1: Yes, I've been looking forward to this for a couple of weeks. Whenever
0: I, I was thinking about reaching out to you, I was like, Man, Roy's such a wealth of knowledge. What do I focus on? Yeah. <laughs> I know that like concept of email and being mm. HIPAA compliant with email has come up a lot of times, like right, in the community, right. just among colleagues. And so I thought that's a great place to start. So I'm looking forward to us talking about email and HIPAA compliance and how to stay secure.
1: Sure. Yeah, sounds good. Should I just jump in? Of
0: (laughs) course. So one of the things we were talking about, this term HIPAA, right? Like, what exactly does that mean? And Mm. how does that relate to email?
1: I love the way you asked that, Melvin. What exactly does that mean? I'm like, yeah, that is actually precisely the right question to ask. I like to be snarky. It means HIPAA or Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act. That's the snarky answer. Mm. (laughs) But the real answer, of course, is HIPAA is a federal regulation. We all know that, of course. But it's a regulation that was built to actually create a national electronic insurance billing system, the one we use. If you ever do electronic billing, like you signed up with a clearinghouse, a lot of people would sign up through Office Ally, or you may have a practice management system that manages it for you, or you hired a biller to just handle it for you and you don't think about it. But that electronic system, that was all set up by HIPAA. That was the purpose of HIPAA. And so here's the kind of bit that when you say how you ask what it means, because this is kind of points to what it means, which is generally speaking, in this world, when we set up things like that, along with it comes laws about how you keep the information secure right so like when well, they set up this thing, where the idea is that clinics all over the country are going to be just sort of slinging health information you know people's private confidential information over the internet every day. They said, well, we also have to build regulations to make sure that they don't do that in a really irresponsible way. Because honestly, software developers, most of them, will just design things according to whatever the specification says you have to do. Right? They'll just make it that way. And they may or may not make it secure. So, of course, the regulation says you have to make it secure. And here's a bunch of rules for doing that. And, of course, the way politics work, this was enacted in 1996. But the rules for HIPAA were actually finalized in 2003 and 2005 for two different parts of it. And so it took a long time and in the meantime the rules got kind of added on to so that it became not just the insurance billing thing, but a general rule that just defines how we have to keep healthcare information secure in the entire practice.
0: Hmm. So it actually over time it distinguished it from just like just health insurance
1: yeah, that's right. So that's what happened. Like basically, it started as an act. And the act, like most acts, usually they don't say, here's what the rule is. They say, they designate some office that's going to be in charge of it. And they say that office has to now go make rules that tell people how to do this. Now you got to make a rule that tells people how to do that. Mm-hmm. And you got to make a rule that tells people how to do this other thing. And so then over the, the years, they make those rules. And then that's actually what we call HIPAAs, those rules that they finalized in 2003,
0: 2005. That's interesting. So I, just a random question. So if you're not working with an insurance provider, it sounds like then HIPAA mm-hmm. is still applicable yeah. because it's
1: oh. medical information, right? Well, see, that would make sense, wouldn't it? Yeah. That would be logical. <laughs> <laughs> Certainly, if I was making the rule, that would be the sensible thing mm-hmm. to do. Mm-hmm. That's not actually what they did. Well, the way they did it is they defined. So, I mean, there's a couple different kinds of what's called a covered entity. You've probably heard that term. Mm-hmm. But there's a couple kinds. You know, there's insurance companies and there's the insurance clearinghouses. That's one kind. And the other kind is us, the healthcare provider. All right, so healthcare providers, we are actually only covered if we use that billing system. That electronic billing system that HIPAA set up, only then are we actually covered by HIPAA. Right? If you've never used that, then you're probably not covered by HIPAA. You're not a covered entity, even though HIPAA's rules apply to your entire practice. That's so interesting. So
0: it actually has to go through that that medium, right? The yeah. clearinghouse?
1: Yep, that's right. That's exactly it. That's it. And it's really weird.
0: (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) I'm like, don't try to like wrap my brain around it. But yeah, it doesn't make the most logical sense. I can the way you explained it makes sense. But like logically, it doesn't make the most sense.
1: Exactly. Yeah. Basically, it's like, well, we've got these rules that cover your entire life, but you only start actually having to follow those rules if you walk over to this building over here and flip this switch. Mm-hmm. And we're like, OK, maybe I won't flip that switch. right? <laughs> and like, Well, but you can get more customers in your practice if you flip that switch. That's kind of how that goes. Right. But this is actually an important conversation to have, because whether you're a HIPAA covered entity or not, it doesn't necessarily define whether you need to do all this security stuff. I mean, there's always the issue of just are you taking care of your clients? And so this is one of my policies I have when I discuss legal ethical issues. I've decided about a month ago, I'm going to start doing this every single time. I'm going to talk about how it can be a liability for you, because that's what I get asked about a lot. So I'm going to talk about that. But every time I talk about a legal ethical issue, I'm going to talk about the other side, which is how it can be a harm to your clients. right? I realize if I don't do that, people, they get too liability brained. And when we get liability-brained, we just start acting out of fear and things go south really fast. Mm -hmm. So, like, the thing I want to emphasize is that I may have just told people something they didn't know. They may suddenly realize, oh, my God, I'm not legally required to comply with HIPAA because I've never touched electronic insurance billing. So at that point, I go, okay, great. There's good news there, right? If you don't have to follow the federal law, there's actually a lot of things that change. However, the thing you want to consider is that many of us see just the general concept of keeping our electronic information confidential. Mm. Like People will call that the HIPAA stuff. I've actually had a lot of people describe it to me that way. Oh, the HIPAA stuff. I'm like, okay, which HIPAA stuff are you talking about? Just be sure. There's a lot of stuff. And they say things like securing my computer or putting passcodes on my phone. And I'm like, well, do you have information about your clients on your computer or on your phone? And they say, yes. And I say, well, isn't that the ethics stuff? I mean, basically, it's kind of like put your locked file cabinet in a locked room, right? If it was paper, but you're saying you wouldn't do that if it's electronic because it's the HIPAA stuff. Sorry to sound very little pejorative there. Don't mean to.
0: (laughs) I think the key thing I'm I'm hearing is I think a lot of times we as clinicians can come from a perspective of how do I minimize liability, but it's equally important to think about the perspective of our clients and what are we doing to protect them
1: Right. Absolutely. And that is actually where I come from. That's where I started all of this. And so for me, generally when I do education and training, I will always tell people what HIPAA's quirks and how to work with it because it's really important. But also just usually when I'm talking about security, I'm coming from the perspective of how do you make sure that you're not going to have some messy situation where clients feel harmed, whether they are or not. Right. Right. Which so, can bring us to email. Yeah. No, I, well, that man, you read my mind. So yeah, I, yeah which I
0: wanted to talk about this because in the context of email, so one is, and maybe it's just start this broad, but why is something like, I don't know the term we want to use. Do we want to use HIPAA compliant?
1: HIPAA secure. That's oh. the thing that we're doing these days. HIPAA okay. secure.
0: So yeah. I'm going to go with the lingo here. So why is yeah. HIPAA secure email so important?
1: So It's especially important because email is actually like pre-internet. The whole concept of email is primordial. The first email was credited in like the 1960s. And remember, the Internet was essentially developed in the 70s. And it was not designed to be a secure way of communicating. The last time the email protocol, I used to be a programmer, right? So we use protocols to make things. The email protocol was last updated in the early 80s. Mm. There was an update made so you, you can attach files to emails. So thank goodness, that was great. Right. But uh, that's the last time it was updated. Mm. So now, I like to say this jokingly, but it's also kind of true. We didn't really invent Internet security until like 2000, right, before <laughs> the 90s maybe, right? We really didn't care. And then suddenly we cared a lot because everyone's using their credit cards. And so email was not updated to accommodate that. So email in its basic form, when you're just using email, it doesn't do anything to protect its contents, the confidentiality of its contents. right? So like if I send an email across the Internet, it is the Internet's a big open network. This is one of those things I think we all need to be able to conceptualize is what happens when you send something over the Internet. Because we have a tendency to conceptualize the Internet as a thing that's just sort of like a teleportation machine, like a transporter from Star Trek. Like I click the send button and it transports over there and it's because it's invisible. You can't see it. So the way the Internet actually works is imagine that I wanted to write a letter and send it to a friend in Miami. I'm in Portland, Oregon, so I'm on the other side of the country from Miami. Right. And I want to send it to Miami. I could give it to the Postal Service and they would take it there directly. Instead, I'm going to do a little trick. I'm going to walk out to the street and I'm going to start asking people, are you heading southeasterly? Anybody's heading southeasterly. (laughs) And if I find somebody, I'll say, can you just take this letter as far southeast as you're going? And then when you're not going southeast anymore, can you hand it to somebody else who is going southeast? And like, can you just sort of do that chain until it gets to the address that's written on this envelope? And they say, OK. And they just take it to the next guy and they take it to the next guy. And it just sort of slowly works its way across the United States until it gets to Miami, Florida. Mm-hmm. Right? The Internet works like that. That's how the Internet works. And it uses various computers that different telecommunication companies usually set up in order to be part of the internet. Mm. So what happens there, what that means is, once I hand off that letter to the first person, I don't know what happens to it next, Right. right? That's the key. But it does find its way there, most likely. The internet, by the way, is more reliable than the system I just described, but it is similar to that. So when I hand off an email, it's going to find its way through this Rube Goldberg machine of different computers and wires and strings with cans and things like that until it gets to where it's going. And in the meantime, it's going to pass through a lot of hands. And so because the email doesn't protect its confidentiality at all, any of those hands can see what's in the email. Think of an email like sending a postcard, but you don't send it to the postal service. You send it through Roy's little special. Hey, are you going this direction service?
0: Right. So the concern really is that exchange that happens when you send the email.
1: There really, quite honestly, is also the concern of what happens when your client has the email and it's sitting in their their email service. Their email service is going to be a computer somewhere that's owned by the company that provides their email. So they have an account. And so now the email is sitting in one place. We call it at rest. What's in that client's life, right? Often abusers will force their targets of the abuse to give them their email passwords or to show them their email or things like that. That, of course, is true of anything. I'm not trying to say that's a particular vulnerability of email, but it's the other part of the vulnerability we need to think about when we're using these kinds of communications. Like what's going on in the client's life? What are the risks to their confidentiality if I use any of this tech to talk to them? For me, the vast majority of my clients have supportive, loving home environments, but that's not really a risk for them. Some of them, though, have employers who do watch their email. Right. So they may work for a big company. And if I email them at their company address, then their employer will see that email. And so they don't want their employers to know they're in therapy. Mm-hmm. So we don't use that address. I mean, it's a simple fix, right? It's not a big deal. It's just like, oh, so we don't use that address. We use a different address. It's really easy. But we have to have that awareness that that's what's going on in order to make that decision. Right? It's a collaborative decision of when I talk to the client about it, they go, oh, I don't want my employer to see this. Maybe I should use my Gmail account. And yeah, that's a good idea.
0: Part of it, I think, is being very proactive. Yeah. Well, which brings I think to the next question I had is I think when we're thinking about email and just corresponding over email there's like certain myths, right, we have. Yeah. So what would you just thinking about the scenarios that you've encountered, the situations you've dealt with, what would you say are kind of the the top 3 myths that clinicians believe about mm. communicating through email?
1: With oh man, okay. Well, all right. Not to <laughs> put you on the spot or anything. <laughs> yeah, my like, top three myths, I'm like, oh man, I can just think of a million things to talk about. I think one is, it's not really a myth, because it's not a story we tell each other, but it's a story we tell ourselves, is the myth of the teleportation, which I just sort of talked about. You know, The whole thing like, doesn't teleport, it actually goes through a process, it just goes so fast that you can't see it. So that's actually really important. That's one of my research topics I'm very interested in, is what technical ideas, therapist, what's the minimum set of technical things therapists need to know to be able to behave professionally? And that's one of them, is knowing how it moves across the Internet. The other is, it's kind of a myth that HIPAA says you can't use email at all. You might think it's harmful because people then don't use email. But actually, I find that myth is most harmful because people then decide that HIPAA is stupid and then they ignore it. What happens is they say, oh, HIPAA says I can't do this, I can't do that. That's HIPAA is a big list of can'ts and don'ts. Right? It's they just like throw it all out. Exactly. And they end up just sort of using email willy-nilly without any of the things that you need to think about. Like, you know, that whole thing I just described of what are the risks around email, I didn't say anything about HIPAA in there, right? HIPAA was completely unmentioned. Mm. I was just talking about the logistics of what's safe and what might not be safe for your clients, mm. right? And so at that point, if you're throwing out HIPAA because it seems like a big list of can'ts and don'ts then you may throw out with that all those considerations and then your client ends up harmed. So like the thing that a big myth that seems very important to me is this idea of HIPAA says you absolutely can't use email, which is not true. Third myth is very technical. It has to do with encryption, Mm. right? So like encryption these days, everyone's heard the word. I've been doing this training thing for about five years and every time I do a training, I ask people, do you feel like you know what encryption is? And when I started, I got like three hands out of 50 These days, about half people raise their hands. That's really good progress. I'm really glad about that. People feel like they know what encryption is now. A myth that comes up, though, is that we hear the word encryption as a synonym for secure, right? We just hear encryption is security. They're the same thing. Encryption is just one very, very useful tool that protects confidentiality. So, for example, those emails, if I hand them off to the bucket brigade of people who are going to carry it across the country for me, if I scramble the letter first, if I write it in some sort of scrambled code, then all the people whose hands it passes through, sure, they could read it, but it's in a big scrambled code. They have no idea what it says. Mm. And that's encryption. Encryption protects confidentiality. And so there's a myth that if encryption is involved in your email, that means it's fully secure. That there's nothing about it that you need to do or that HIPAA is going to be okay with it because encryption is somehow involved. Does, Does that make sense? Yeah,
0: it does. I think so just like the process or just the fact that encryption exists does not necessarily make it secure, right?
1: That is precisely it. That's right. And the reason why that's important is, like, not that encryption isn't amazing, because it is. Encryption is super amazing. But because, like, for example, when I go connect to my Google account, my web browser tells me your connection is secure. You have an encrypted connection to Google. Like, it tells me that, right? And it's true, because Google does that. Like, all their websites, whenever you connect to them, they use an encrypted connection. And so the challenge there is that we'll look at that and go, oh, it's encrypted, Great, it's encrypted email. And I'm like, well, it's not encrypted email. It's just when you connect to Google so that you and Google can like write an email together, then your connection with Google is encrypted. The thing is, after you write your email, Google then turns around and sends your email. And whether they send it with encryption or not is a whole other issue. Mm-hmm. Now, actually, Google, I, maybe I shouldn't have picked Google because Google is actually one of the people who will do its best to use encryption when it sends your email. But it can't always do so because the other side has to also be ready to take encryption. So, like, that can bring us next to the topic of what kind of email services do you need?
0: Switch, which is, man, you're reading my mind. So, yeah, in general, <laughs> two-parter. So, what features should clinicians look for or should they consider when looking for encrypted email service providers? And then more specifically, like, if you have, and not at all, like, as you're comfortable, like, if you have, like, specific mm-hmm. recommendations on ones that generally recommend.
1: Oh, yeah. Okay, I got this, man. Okay, so like the uh, there's a couple considerations. One is, so you have a provider of a service. And so I'm going to use a little analogy that, that I like to use to describe this. Imagine, Melvin, if in your building, you had a guy named Sam, and he runs Sam's Fax Emporium. And so his service, the way it works is instead of you having your own fax machine, you just hire Sam to use his fax machines. And what happens is when you need to receive a fax, people send it to Sam. Sam gets your fax, takes it out, puts it in an envelope, and then brings it to you. Or if you need to send a fax, you go over to Sam, give him the paper that you need to fax, and then he faxes it for you. So every fax you send or receive, let's pretend we're still in an era when we're faxing all the time, is going to go through Sam's hands. He's going to see all of them. So at that point... Would you just go hire Sam, say thanks, and then say bye and let him handle all those faxes? Or would you want something a little extra, some kind of assurances of confidentiality?
0: Right. Yeah, I think for us, (laughs) you would want that, right? You would want some sort of...
1: Absolutely. So the thing is, email services are exactly like Sam's Fax Emporium. So when you use any email provider, there's some service, there's some people who are running computers that have a service where you go to that service and say, hey, here's the message I want to send to somebody and they turn that message into an email and send it off for you. And when you receive an email, they actually receive it for you, and then they send it to you in a form that you can read. That's basically what happens there. And so HIPAA requires us to get that assurance with that company. Under HIPAA, that's a thing called a business associate agreement. So you would need for HIPAA compliance to have a business associate agreement with any email provider you have because they handle that health information, that sensitive confidential information for you. So that's step one. That actually eliminates a lot of options. Right. The need to have that agreement, because a lot of people still use service providers that provide their Internet, like they'll use Comcast, for example, for their email. And so Comcast won't do those agreements. And there's a good reason. Like it's actually very expensive and takes a lot of responsibility for a company to do that agreement with somebody. So a lot of them won't do that. Google will do that. Microsoft will do that. So it's Microsoft 365 or Google Apps for Work. Both of those are not free. They cost about $5 per month. They're really inexpensive. But if you're using the free Gmail, you won't be able to get that agreement from Google. You have to upgrade to Google Apps for Work. Or if you're using like the free Outlook Mail, you need to upgrade to Microsoft 365, and then you can get that agreement. And what that means there at that point, though, is that now it's legal for you to allow those services to do that email handling for you. But there's still the issue of the fact that you're sending these things across the open Internet, and they're basically postcards. So at that point... You want to consider if I want to be able to confidentially message with my clients, if I want to be able to do that, I need an option that does not send the information over the internet like a postcard, right? I need something that does it that way. And there's a couple options there. You can get an add-on for Google or an add-on for Microsoft that allows you to do what's called secure messaging, which is a lot of times people call secure messaging encrypted email. They're kind of synonyms these days, encrypted email and secure messaging. I'm going to get technical and say they're not actually the same thing, but I'm kind of just being nerdy. I'm giving all the couchers a discount on my level one training, which actually does explain the difference because it does actually matter. But for our purposes here, we'll just call them the same thing. But like secure messaging, what it does is it gives you and your client kind of space online where you can exchange messages with each other securely. And Google has an add on. I think it's called Virtue. I think that's the name of it that lets you do that with your Google Mail.
0: That's- is there a cost or does that?
1: Yeah, I okay. think it's like another five or 10 a month. Yeah, so you're looking at up to 10 or 15 a month for this service, which actually is a really good deal, especially because the Google suite gives you a lot more than just email. Microsoft has the same thing and including all the cool stuff. I talk about Google because it's what I use. And I got to remember hey, Microsoft does that stuff too for the same price, <laughs> right? The competition has their space too. <laughs> but like, And so those are your kind of consumer side services. There's also services that just do secure mail. Mm -hmm. Like I use Hushmail. That's a very popular one. Hush like secret mail. And Hushmail's built primarily to do the secure messaging thing. The reason I use Hushmail in addition to my Google is because Hushmail lets me have a page on my website where people can send me secure messages from the website. They just go to my website. You know how like you often have like a little contact me page Mm -hmm. on your site? By the way, those are a big HIPAA problem, just FYI. I have one that's through Hushmail. Like Hushmail kind of provides my contact me page. And that allows my clients or anybody who wants to contact me to do so in a way that's completely secure. It uses strong encryption from their computer all the way to mine. And so that's the reason I like to have Hushmail in addition to my Google. So I have that option as well.
0: So it sounds like Hushmail is the primary reason is because of that like contact mm-hmm. me form or any way that a client can yep. correspond. Okay.
1: Yeah, so far, that's the big distinguisher between Hushmail and other secure messaging providers. Yeah, and there's lots of them. If you do a search for HIPAA-compliant email, even though I'm saying let's not use that term, but if you do that search, you'll find lots of those providers. Also, your practice management system or electronic health record system may have a thing called a client portal. And that's a place where clients can log in. And one of the main purposes of those is to make it easier for you to release records to them which is a HIPAA requirement, so it's becoming very common to have these on the practice management systems. But the other thing it can do is allow you guys to securely talk to each other, Mm kind of like Hushmail does.
0: So if your practice management software includes something like that, do you need both Hushmail and the practice management software?
1: No, in that case, you wouldn't, unless you want that secure contact me page. That's the one thing Hushmail does that I haven't seen elsewhere. But I know some of the practice management system providers are, are looking to add that for that reason. Got
0: it. Roy, this was a whole lot of technical, very helpful information. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much for doing this. I feel like I've learned a lot. I didn't, I think I, I thought I had somewhat of an understanding, but I think you've definitely, like, even just this contact me form, like, I, mm-hmm. I never knew that, you know, never even thought about it, but.
1: Yeah, it's a challenge for us because it's a new paradigm. I know there was a time in our professional history when we had to learn to get along with law. Mm. I like to say lawyers are a part of your work life. You need to learn a little bit about law. These days now we're adding on to that security. All right. So it's a new paradigm. Think of it like learning a new modality. Awesome.
0: Roy, what are some of the best ways that folks can get in touch with you? And I know that you had this awesome discount for listeners. So thank you so much for doing that.
1: Sure, yeah. So everything I just talked, I just had to do a very condensed version. We have core continuing education trainings at personcenteredtech.com. That's personcenteredtech.com. We have a core set of trainings that are meant to mental health clinicians who are not tech savvy, who don't already know all this stuff to get up to speed on these things. And so I'm giving you guys a 60% discount, big discount on the level one. The level 1 talks about communications, the email, texting, video. It talks about, you know, using the internet with clients. And basically everything I just explained is explained much more slowly and with diagrams and cool presentations along with a lot of other ethical and legal information. So go to personcenteredtech.com/coucher. You just click a button, you get your 60% discount. It'll be fantastic. It's a 3 continuing education hours.
0: Oh, awesome. Thank you so yeah. much, Roy. Yeah, sure. Yeah, I feel like I learned a lot. And so I'm looking right. forward to like yeah. when when folks hear this conversation and just I know it's going to drive a lot of conversation and a lot
1: of discussion. So thank you. Good. Again. Yeah, thank you, sir. Thanks for having me.
0: Hi there. Hope you enjoyed my conversation with Roy. I know that was a lot of information and I encourage you to listen to this session one more time if you need to or a couple of more times, whatever is easier. And uh, most beneficial for you, and I was just thinking about some of the things that I took away and I think, and I alluded to this in the interview, but I had never thought about that contact me section of a website, so it could usually be on your menu for clients to be able to touch base with you if they're using if that contact me goes to a email address which it usually does then one of the things that I just never thought is that's not HIPAA secure. I mean, it makes sense when Roy mentioned it, but I just never thought about it. And I was, we are actually in the process of building out my private practice website at com, And uh, it's just something that I want to be aware of and make sure that I'm doing it uh, the right way. Roy mentioned and gave a really generous discount to his Uh, beginning level course, and you can again find that at personcenteredtech.com forward slash Coucher, and that's C-O-U-C-H-E-R. I love these names that we're coming up with for our community. Coucher is such a cool name. Roy, thank you again for uh, providing that for our community. If you'd like to continue this conversation on email and what email platforms to use, Please join us in the Selling the Couch community at sellingthecouch.com forward slash community. Show notes to today's episode can be found at sellingthecouch.com forward slash session and the number 8-8. Eight eight. I know that Roy mentioned a number of resources and a number of points. You can find summaries to all of that. Last but not least, just wanted to thank the awesome folks over at Brighter Vision as I have correspondent and as I've talked with private practitioners, uh, there are just so many pieces to juggle when it comes to private practice. And the website is such an important part of private practice, but it can be something that is almost can feel like another task. If you're just at a point where you're ready to outsource some of that work, especially your website and just use someone that has an outstanding reputation in our community and they know what languaging connects with clients, please check them out at sellingthecouch.com forward slash brighter vision. And that gives you 30 days absolutely free. And just one last announcement. The podcasting workshops that I've been hosting for the past couple of months, we've got one coming up here in August And you can find more information at sellingthecouch.com forward slash podcasting workshop. This is just a wonderful opportunity if you're thinking about launching a podcast or if you've already launched and just um, have questions. It's a wonderful opportunity just to learn about some of the things like gear and software all the way to how do you use podcasting to grow out your practice and to really start to scale your business, whether you want to go into certain things like creating an ebook or creating courses or speaking, how can you use podcast as a way to leverage that medium in order to share your message with the world? I like to keep these very informal but really high quality. I do not like signing up for webinars where someone teaches for like a couple of minutes and then it's like a pitch fest where they're just sharing product after product. I am very, I like to take a different approach. I like to just teach, go really deep and leave a lot of time for your questions. Again, you can find that at sellingthecouch.com forward slash podcasting workshop. Have a wonderful rest of your week and take good care. Bye.